Uh, without any further ado, I'll invite Senator Banks up and ask if there are any questions. Thank you. Before, before questions, I want to just congratulate you and this organization for, oh, for, I guess first I should say thank you for inviting me here. I'm very grateful that you did. It, I have been here once before. It was a great pleasure then, as it is now. And uh, Joyce and I get around a bit, and I, as I did in my previous uh, vocation. And I can tell you that, I, to my knowledge, there's nothing like this organization in any other city or town in the country. And you are to be congratulated, and the people who started it are to be congratulated, and, the, and you who support it and are here today are to be congratulated, and I thank you for doing that. I wish everybody in the country would do that, because we'd have a lot better informed folks than we have in some parts of our, of our country. So thank you for inviting me, and congratulations. And Gordon, I, 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 I hate it when, when people play the national anthem as a dirge. But that was, you almost beat us to the finish line there, man. Yeah. It was terrific. And it had a lovely dramatic res restraint at the end that was very, very, very good show business. I admire that greatly. Thank you for doing that. It was terrific. Very well done. We should. <laughs> well,. I have to. I guess I'm. A, I guess I'm a Flames guy now because the Oilers are out of it for, the, for this year again. So uh, we are all Flames fans now. Uh, so questions, folks, about uh, as as Diane has said about anything uh, that I have said or anything that I haven't said, and I'd be happy to answer anything. To the, as long as you're prepared to accept, I don't know is the answer. I'm a liberal. I'm in southern Alberta. There can't be no questions. <laughs> yes, sir. Welcome. Hello, and thank you for coming. My name is Isaac Mohanan. Uh, I need a little bit of preamble for my question. Just last week, we had understood that pol the polls indicated that if everyone voted, there'd still probably be more conservative voters. Now, I'm not pro-conservative. I'm not anti-conservative, but I do want to see a change in government. And I think that's a question that I've had for almost every speaker. How do we change? How do things change? Can we actually muster up social pressure to make that change happen? I'm a political science student. Most revolutions happen because of guns. Canadians are too nice and too polite to ever go down that route from what I can understand. But can we create a new type of change, a social pressure change, so that we can actually see parliamentarians becoming responsible, so that party divides don't weaken and basically bolster just imperialism in the name of democracy. Thank you. Thank you. Well, th thank you for the question. Our, our, our system, our system, if it works and when it works, is almost perfect. And, and the way, the, the short answer to your question is that the way to bring about the kind of change that you're talking about, guys, I know you understand how to bring about electoral change. You, you know how to do that. You, you, you get people involved. Are you a member of a political party? I'm an international student, so I do not get to vote or run. Uh, but you can still be a member of a political party. So... I'm not suggesting which one, but the, the short answer to your question is, and, and this is the serious part, politicians, 
even including present company to a degree, are highly susceptible of constituent pressure. And so if the constituents, the people who elect politicians, make clear to the people that they elect or who are vying to be elected what the people expect, then the politicians will be sensitive to those requirements. The reason that politicians, in my view, are not always as as susceptible of that kind of pressure as they ought to be is because too many people, unlike all of you here, are not sufficiently well-informed to ask the right questions, or if they are, don't bother to go to the to the meetings uh, at which the candidates in an election, whether it's federal or provincial or municipal or, or school board, uh, are, are, are attendant, and ask the, the, the cogent questions. Because that is what will call a politician to account on his or her way to office. And, and it is also the kind of thing to which politicians are, are uh, sensitive when they are in office. So constituent pressure is the short answer to your question. It, that is the, way by, the means by which I think politicians can be made more and more accountable. But it requires informed questions. We need to be better informed than we are. Present company accepted because people who come to this organization are well informed. So well informed that they don't ask questions. Yes. Oh, we we have one coming. I'm here. Yes, ma'am. My my name is Susan Giffen. I was interested in your your comment about the Senate being set up when it was set up with the the, the regions, and you attend a, a Western Caucus, and there's an Ontario, Quebec, and the Maritimes, um, and it seems almost now to me that 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 division is. Passe. I think that might be the word I want. And I wonder where the rural-urban split that faces Canadians would come into your meetings. Because I believe that a lot of the problems that we have in Canada are based on a rural-urban split rather than an east-west or an up-down or whatever. Thank you for the question. It's a very good one. Uh, I, I, I guess I didn't make myself clear, but I want to make sure that you understand that I said that that is the way the Senate was originally set up and the way it, in fact, conducted itself for a long time, but has since ceased to do so. So those regional caucuses no longer meet. They don't exist anymore because successive governments of both stripes have succeeded in politicizing in the in the partisan sense, the Senate to a degree in which it was not originally intended and in a a degree that it was not originally practiced. Now, I I don't want to paint too rosy a picture of that. The reason that the Senate was put into place in the first place was to protect the interests of the – to protect the landed interests. It was to protect the landed interests against the rabble in the House of Commons and the, the nutty things that they might do against the interests of the landed interests, the landed gentry, the rich. It has long since ceased to be that, as it has ceased to be that in, in the mother of parliaments as well. So, so it, it doesn't exist anymore. You're right about the rural-urban. I don't know if split is the right answer, is the right word, but 
It's certainly a, a sort of national dichotomy. And that split is different in Newfoundland than it is in Alberta, than it is in B.C., than it is in Yellowknife uh, territories or, or, or elsewhere. It's defined by different terms, as are most of the other differences in our, in our country. Senator Fairburn has, has spearheaded one of the cogent aspects, a study of the, one of the most cogent aspects of that question, because she went across the country with the committee that, that she then chaired, studying rural poverty and the causes for it and why it has happened. And, and I mean, we all know some of the obvious reasons that it's happened because of, you know, I guess industrialization in the largest sense of the word, both of agriculture and the move to, to, to cities and the attractiveness of them with respect to jobs. But, but the question is no less important, and it's one with which every government in the country wrestles. The government of Prince Edward Island wrestles with that question, and in the same sense that the government of Alberta does, and certainly the national government does. I don't think it's a schism. It's a question of trying to find, as is, as is always the case with politics, a balance. Mr. Christian once explained to me that if we pass a law which makes everybody equally angry, we've probably got it about right. <laughs> Thank you. Next. Ed uh, Bardock's my name. You've come a long way, Senator, and I didn't want you to get away without at least one provocative question. Your thesis is that Parliament isn't doing its job, and you also included the Senate. I don't know if you're advocating speaking up, because some members from the Conservative Party in Newfoundland stood up for their constituents, and they were banished. And then Ignatieff had some people question some uh, concerns, and he gave them a one-time dispensation. It seems to me that while you talk about speaking up and talking about democracy, the prime ministers, regardless of stripe, the mandarins, and I would even suspect the corporate sector, carry the power in Ottawa just as they carry it in Alberta's government. What is the solution then to speak up if when you speak up you're banished? Balls. <laughs> That's how they get eunuchs. <laughs> Eunuchs don't have them. There, there are, you're exactly right. And as in all things in politics, it's a question of finding a balance. If we had, if we had no such thing as the requirement for party solidarity, then there would be chaos in Parliament and we would have Italy or, or worse in which you'd have splinters going off here and factions going off there, and no one would able, ever be able, even with the unlikely prospect that exists in this country at the present, to form a majority government. But we would have far less stability than we have. So there has to be a degree of party solidarity. But there also have to be, from time to time, in the House of Commons, there have to be people, there have to be free votes, but there also have to be people who, notwithstanding the party solidarity, will vote against their party. And sometimes they do, and sometimes they get their 
cut off for doing it. But they, but they, re, they but they, but they're still there. And sometimes when they do that, their constituents surprise reelect them. There are a couple of examples of that sitting in the House of Commons right now. Now, with respect to the Senate, we have no excuse for not voting our conscience. And as Senator Fairburn will tell you, both she and I have from time to time voted against our party. But we have a certain luxury because in the Senate, there are, there are, the worst thing about the Senate is that it is absolutely undemocratic and not responsible and unelected. That's the worst thing about the Senate. The best thing about the Senate is that it is absolutely undemocratic and, and not responsible and not elected. And that aspect is because you can't get rid of me. Once I'm there, you can't get rid of me. The governor general can't fire me, short of my committing a heinous crime. The prime minister can't get rid of me. Nobody can get rid of me, and therefore I have no excuse for hewing to a party line if I don't agree with it. And I have, on many occasions, got myself in trouble with our party for doing exactly that. But that is a luxury that we enjoy in the Senate that is not enjoyed to the same degree in the House of Commons. And what it requires is people of character who will, notwithstanding party solidarity, when their conscience demands it, vote against the government. But we... but. We have to bear in mind – I'm sorry to go on, but this is really a – that's a very important question. We must remember how parliamentary democracy works. There are party caucuses, and the blood is on the floor in those party caucuses because that's when it's decided what the party's position is going to be. And the argument – you would not believe the argument in the party caucuses. But once those party caucuses, which are entirely private, supposedly – once those doors open, it's arms around and smiling because we have now determined in, in that caucus, this is how we're going to vote. And we hang together or we hang separately. And that is how parliamentary democracy works efficiently. So there has to be a balance between those two things. Every vote can't be a free vote. And sometimes the, the leader of a party needs to be able to say, you may disagree with this, but we have discussed this here in caucus, and the majority of the members here in caucus and the party and the policy and the platform people have, have determined this is how we're going to vote. And if you are going to be a member of this caucus on this issue, that is how you will vote. And if you vote otherwise, it is on pain of your being removed from this caucus. There has to be that. Otherwise, there would be chaos. So the question is finding a balance between the two. But fortunately, I can tell you that there are two or three members sitting in the House of Commons right now who have voted against their government, who have been kicked out of their respective caucuses, and who have been reelected by their constituents, perhaps, I suggest, because of the character that they showed in doing what they did and voting their conscience, and that includes a couple of people from Newfoundland. But that's a great question. It's a very complicated means of doing business. But only dictatorships are, are simple. Yes, ma'am. Hello, my name is uh, Cheryl Bradley, and welcome back to SACPAW, Senator Banks. It's good to have you here. Um, I was interested in your comments about false sense of urgency in terms of passing government bills, and I think you were particularly speaking to budget bills. I am. 
and so that it's not allowing time for sober second thought. Or sober first thought. (laughs) And I think we saw that in the recent budget bill that went before the Senate, and there were some add-ons to that bill which dealt with some pretty important environmental issues like the Navajo Waters Protection Act. And yet the Senate was caught up in the haste of of passing that bill, and we may suffer ancillary consequences that we didn't realize because of things that were tied to that bill. And I'm wondering if you can comment on whether there is an increasing trend of tying matters which aren't strictly related to the budget onto these bills. I, I hear about that a lot in the U.S., Are we seeing some of that happening in Canada? And just perhaps give us a little more insights into what happened in that particular situation, this past budget bill. I will. Thank you very much. That's a good question. It's it's quite current. The the short and sad answer is yes. You've heard about the American term, uh, what's it called, earmarking, uh, in which trade-offs are made in both houses of Congress I'll vote for your factory if you'll vote for my bridge. And I'll vote for this bill if you will include in it a tale that says this other thing that's got nothing to do with the bill, but I want to get this passed, so we'll sneak it through on the tails of this bill, on the tailcoats of this bill. That is now happening increasingly in, in governments of both stripes in this country. And it's something that Parliament – it's part of what I was talking about earlier. Parliament has to go to – at some point has to stand up to a government and say, you can't do that. And we should have done it this time. We should have done it with the budget to which you refer. This was a 564-page document, small type, which contained the, the which 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 in, in which which Parliament was asked to approve, which approval granted the authority to the government to spend hundreds of billions of dollars. Without, I don't, I can't say it without any scrutiny, but without sufficient scrutiny. But more importantly than that, with respect to the question that you asked, is the fact that that budget bill, budget bills in this country used to deal with budgets. They used to say, here's how much money we've got, here's how we're going to spend it, and here are the line items, department by department, in which we're going to spend it. That what, that's what a budget bill used to be. The budget that was just passed by the House of Commons and, sadly, the Senate, contained those budget expenditures for those many billions of dollars. It also, however, enacted amendments to 42 other acts of Parliament, enacted three new acts of Parliament, including removing all of the requirements for... uh, Canadian ownership of transportation undertakings, raising the level of foreign ownership in transportation undertakings in the country, raising the foreign ownership levels of shares in Air Canada, changing the the Navigable Waters Protection Act in, in ways that are not prudent. It isn't that they didn't need to be fixed. That bill needed to be fixed. It hadn't been fixed for a long time, but it gave too much power to the government. I, I have to talk about one thing that I that, that Diane talked about that I was going to mention and it didn't. It's called framework legislation. 
the other means by which successive governments of both stripes have succeeded in evading the scrutiny of parliament in doing not just spending money but in doing other things as well is, is what is generally called framework legislation. It is legislation in which a bill is presented to parliament that says here's a general idea about what we're going to do and here is the means by which parliament will give the government the authority to do that. And the and the the, the questions, the answer to the question is, how will this actually operate? How will it work when the rubber hits the road? Will be contained in regulations which will be promulgated under the Act uh, later after we've passed it. But you guys pass this now and give us the authority to do that. That has become increasingly common so that all, you can almost guarantee that on any matter now, the government will come forward with a bill introduced in either the Senate or the Parliament that is reasonably described as framework legislation. It has no details. There is only one thin red line that protects us in that respect. And that is a joint committee between the House of Commons and the Senate that is called the Joint Committee on the Scrutiny of Regulations because regulations still have to be published in the Canada Gazette. And that committee has the power and authority to disallow those regulations. But it, it has not got the means, the budget, the manpower, the time to deal with scrutiny of all of the regulations that come into place. The, the, the government has just introduced amendments to the Constitution, sorry, to the Customs Act. And I'm proud to say that I have introduced an amendment uh, to, the, to the committee that was studying that bill, and w which, which it passed, which eliminated one of those problems. It, this was a case in which the bureaucracy and the government contrived in the amendments to the Customs Act to pass regulations which would include the incorporation by reference of any material from any source as part of the regulations of the law of Canada. They could incorporate the customs rules of North Korea or the owner's manual to a Boeing 747 into the regulations of the Canada Customs Act. And it's, it's an ambulatory provision which says that if, in the absurd examples that I have given you, well, the first example is absurd, but the second one isn't. If North Korea changed its customs act, then those changes would become part of Canadian regulatory law. And if Boeing changed the, the owner's manual for a 747 five years from now, those changes would become part of Canadian law, Canadian customs law, because they'd be part of the regulations, which would have been passed. We stopped that because we caught it. But the scrutiny that ought to be given by Parliament to things like that doesn't catch every one of those things. And so power is is and authority are gradually condensing into the ministry of the crown under successive governments of all stripes in the, in, in the arguable interests of efficiency. But in fact, it is to avoid parliamentary scrutiny. We caught that one. What we didn't catch in the budget before this one was a provision on page 450 that authorized the government, the Minister of Finance, to borrow money. Period. Now, it used to be the case that a government would need to come before Parliament 
to ask borrowing authority. And after this bill was passed, we, we caught it. And a bill has been now in, been introduced in the Senate to obviate that amendment, to say, sorry, government, whatever color you are, you have to come before a parliament and ask for permission for borrowing, borrowing authority. But at the moment, you should know, the Minister of Finance can borrow any amount of money from any source at any rate for any purpose without seeking further, further parliamentary authority because parliament granted him that authority in the previous budget and nobody caught it till we read the budget days after it was passed. Thank you. That is the kind of scrutiny that I'm talking about. I'm sorry to have gone on so long, but that is a great Excellent. question. Mm. Yeah. Bev Mundell-Atherstone, thank you, Senator Banks, for being here. You. And uh, you do yourself an injustice by downplaying your speaking ability. I think we could listen to you all day with all of your uh, uh, fascinating stories and scary stories uh, <laughs> of how our government functions. There are places in the world that are much worse off than we. <laughs> um, my question goes back to the original topic of coalition governments. And I'm wondering now with your steep learning curve, your perpendicular learning curve over the last nine years, and with um, a bit of uh, retrospective um, um, look at what happened when um, the Liberals and NDP tried to form the coalition government, and and of course Stephen Hopper had done the exact same thing. Why that? Why that went uh, downhill, and how he was able to convince the Canadian public that um, this was an impossible task, and he vilified coalition governments. What it, what, what is your take on what happened there? On what happened? What happened is that the government, seeing that the coalition actually existed, which it, which it did at the time, it was a signed agreement. The Liberal and NDP parties had a signed agreement that on this list of issues, they, they had concomitants, and that on that basis, they would be able to form a government and... Gilles Duceppe also signed that piece of paper, undertaking that he would not, that his party would not defeat the government on a confidence matter until June 30th, 2010. When the prime minister saw that on the following Monday his government was going to be defeated, he went to the governor general and asked for not an election writ but a dissolution of parliament. And, the bringing, and, and, and to begin a new session of Parliament. He spent about two and a half hours with Her Excellency, convincing her to do that, and she granted him a dissolution. First time that's ever happened. The, the approximate equivalence of the Prime Minister's doing that, and I don't blame him, I would have done it too, were I the head of a government, was... <sighs> like a student who's going to go into an exam that he knows he's going to fail, ringing the fire alarm. Because he avoided the certain defeat of his government on the following Monday. It was done. At which time the Governor General would have had the, at least the two options that I described earlier. I can call an election, or I can see if there's anybody else who can form a government. Her Excellency decided to do neither of those but to allow a dissolution temporarily of, of Parliament so that it could be resumed, during which, uh, during which time 
uh, prorogation, sorry, correct, thank you. It wasn't a dissolution, it was a prorogation. During which time, the government, to its great credit, saw that it could not proceed along the lines that it had previously chosen to move and that it must compromise, accommodate, and change its view and its practice, and it did that. And that is why it didn't work. That's why the, 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 the coalition didn't come into power, and that is one of the effective things that the, that the existence of the coalition did. It, it made this government more accommodating, reasonable, and willing to talk about things, in my view. I think that the likelihood now of a coalition in the foreseeable future is zero. But you never know. I think that brings us to 1.30. And uh, seeing no further questions, on behalf of the Council of Public Affairs, I would like to thank you very much, Senator Banks, for sharing your wisdom, your experience, and your insight with us. Thank, thank you. Thank you, Diane. Thank you very much, Diane.